The National Archives podcast series, Big Ideas, from Catwalk to Cultural Collections, How Computer Modelling Helps Us Predict the Future, presented by Nancy Bell and Dr. Martia Strilich. Well, welcome to Big Ideas number three. This means doesn't mean it's just the third big idea, it's just the third in the series. Um, for those of you who, um, this is the first time that you've come to one of these seminars, the idea is that uh, behind it was that we wanted to showcase, present, and demonstrate to uh, a wider sec part of TNA uh, the research outcomes that we have developed over sort of three to five years of research projects. And the, the key theme behind this was to identify one of the big ideas emerging from a research project that it was felt had resonance across other TNA activities. So this isn't just about a very specific piece of research. This is about something that's critical to this project that we think that everyone else could benefit from knowing more about. This week we're talking about modeling, and modeling is very much about looking at the future. And TNA is often um, saying that we need to be more innovative and we need to think more about the future and how we see each ourselves in the future. And to do that, to innovate, we need lots of data and information and planning and foresight planning. And, and that need, means that you need a structure to do that. It's not something that just happens in the room on occasion. Um, otherwise, as my colleague Matthias said, that's just fortune-telling. So <clears throat> I, I perhaps not... It wasn't completely trivial making a reference to the catwalk in the title because, you know, every spring and every autumn we get London Fashion Week projects a vision of the future. If we only bought into what was on the catwalk that season, we could see our future ahead of us. And that word modelling is, in, you know, that's critical there because it's about predicting the future. It's using tools, gathering data that help us to predict the future. Now, in my own sphere, which is collection management, historically the protocols on offer for managing the collection have been a bit wanting, uh, largely because we rely on historic data, environmental data, um, past experience, anecdotal information, and it usually isn't... Uh, it, it tends to vex myself and other colleagues and when we plan our uh, conservation program or collection management program, um, not having the right kind of data and the tools available to us to, to make uh, a purely scientific or a better estimate of what's going to happen in the future. So I've learned through projects we've been involved with, building environment simulation and the collections demography project that we'll be hearing more about, tools of modeling really offer us a great deal in terms of helping us develop programs for our organization and future planning. I don't see anybody here from finance, but um, certainly Clem said before he became chief executive, he was really interested in this, he said that... Um, well, we use modelling all the time to plan our finances on a six, 12-month basis. We need that data to plan our future. So already the seeds are in place in TNA to, to, within the finance team. I know that John Sheridan is looking at 
tools of modeling for information management. So um, our colleague Matthias Stridich from UCL Center for Sustainable Heritage is going to tell us more about the potential of modeling. For those of you who don't know him, Matthias is a long uh, friend of TNA. We've involved, been involved with many research projects together. He has a PhD in chemistry and has been involved with some 30 research projects, I read, and has attracted some 10 million pounds in research funding. So I think he knows what he's doing. Over to you. Thank you very much, Nancy. Thank you. Um, yes, um, it's, it's a real pleasure to, to be here and, and present um, uh, the work that we've done on modeling uh, various aspects of our collection care and uh, uh, conservation of archival collections. Uh, but you won't be surprised to hear that most of this research has been done in collaboration with colleagues from TNA anyway. Uh, so you might have heard uh, some aspects of this already. There is various aspects of modeling and various types of models that we use in scientific modeling. So this is not catwalk modeling. And models are used in order to uh, in order to predict, but also in order to understand real systems that are too difficult uh, to understand. There are various types of models, and I won't pretend that I know all of them. Uh, so let's, uh, let's have a look at what the Bible has about models. There are various types of models, operational, mathematical, conceptual, graphical models. And all of these are meant to understand real systems that are, as I said, too difficult to, de to be described. Uh, we pretend that we know uh, various causal relationships in these real systems, for example, a large collection. Uh, we encode those relationships and we describe those relationships with a more simple system, which we call a model. The reason we do that is because we're not smart enough to understand what takes place in reality, but also because we want to know how small or large changes in the model, in the model might affect the system, the real system itself. We introduce changes into the model in order to understand how these changes might be reflected in the real system. Well, um, this is all very conceptual. And we'll have a look now at how different types of models uh, have been used to understand collection management perhaps a tiny bit better and provide evidence that is required for evidence-based collection management. We'll rely a lot on demographic modeling. Um, the reason why we do that and the reason why we did that in the collections demography project which Nancy mentioned is because we actually see a lot of similarities between large collections of people, if you like, large populations, and large collections of objects, cultural heritage collections. Um, the, the, the second reason is because, because demography, as a, as a branch of science, looks at processes taking place in the population, and this is exactly, again, what we're interested in when we look for evidence-based collection management, we're interested in how the process of access, the process of storage, the process of use affects a particular collection or a particular population of objects. 
So we'll be taking the modeling principles from demographic modeling and we'll use them in connection modeling. One of those principles, one of those concepts are the so-called demographic pyramids. We all know demographic pyramids showing the populations of males and females in a particular, in a particular uh, population either in the past uh, or sometime in the future. So again, we're trying to predict how the age distribution of a particular collection of people will change in the future. This has enormous potential in terms of policy making. It has enormous potential in terms of understanding the aging population. And we were keen to use the same principles in collection management as well. And it turns out that we knew a lot about the rate of decay, the rate of aging in archival collections. However, it turned out to be fairly, fairly difficult to define exactly when an object is dead, if you like. It became very, very difficult to define that point in time when an object is no longer fit for purpose. And it turned out that that is a really, really important point to define. The way how to define it, uh, we saw in asking the users, because they interact with objects on a daily basis and they have their own views about the lifetime of collections. Users, however, come into an archival reading room with a variety of different purposes. They, they study because they study archival or library collections because they want to learn something about their past or they're studying towards a degree. In any way, they have a particular attitude towards the object they accessed on the very day. And we wanted to know their opinion about the future of objects, about when they think an object is no longer fit for the purpose they visit an archival collection. So we carried out a fairly large study uh, at the National Archives, at the Library of Congress, at a couple of English heritage properties, because we were interested in the attitudes of visitors in all these contexts to the future of heritage collections, in particular library and archival collections. And in total, we questioned about 543 users across, uh, across a number of contexts. And uh, the questionnaire was fairly, uh, fairly comprehensive with about 100 questions. The one question that is really, really important for this discussion was when exactly or when approximately in the future the users themselves might consider tolerable for an object no longer to be accessible freely. In other words, we were asking them about their attitudes towards the long-term planning guideline in terms of uh, collection management. And the range of responses was actually very, very interesting. And there was a very good spread of responses as well. We see that about 50% uh, of users would be quite happy if objects are no longer generally accessible for, for whatever reason in about 100 years. However, we would satisfy about 90% of all users if collections are no longer fit for purpose in about 500 years. We thought that this might be a fairly useful long-term planning guideline and might represent the point in time when that we need to plan for. So this is our target lifetime, if you like. 
and we will be using the, the, uh, the period 500 years from now as the long-term planning guideline. However, we still don't know what makes an object unfit for purpose. We've defined the, the, the long-term uh, long goal, but we still don't know what exactly uh, makes an object unfit for purpose. Objects can be stored or they can be kept for the purpose of display. Objects can be kept for the purpose of studying, for the purpose of access, pre-access. However, at some point in time, unfortunately, all organic materials degrade and become brittle and become unfit for general use, simply because their mechanical uh, properties degrade so far that their flexibility is reduced too much. From a chemical perspective, we know these processes, we can model these processes chemically, however, we don't know what exactly makes an object unfit for use. And again, we asked readers what they thought about this particular concept. We presented the readers at TNA, again, 145 readers we bothered with this study, uh, 49 at the Wellcome Library, 139 at the Library of Congress, so again, a fairly comprehensive international study, and we presented them with 17 fairly similar documents, but each one was degraded slightly differently. Some were discolored quite a bit to understand whether color matters to users. Some were degraded in such a way that evidently pieces of text were missing, and some were degraded in such a way not really very clearly, very clearly shown, that they had larger or smaller tears. It was really, really <coughs> interesting to see, however, it doesn't really matter to users whether documents are discolored, which means that in terms of long-term degradation and in terms of understanding long-term processes, we don't really need to prioritize processes that lead to the discoloration. These processes are very often linked to pollution, for example. It also turns out that uh, processes leading to tearing uh, do not matter much to users either. It is really processes leading to loss of text which matter to users. And as soon as there is evidently text missing, the, the average user will say that that document is no longer fit for purpose. So we now know how long into the future we need to model for, and we also know the properties of the document, which is generally considered to be unfit for purpose, and we have all the tools and terminology to apply demographic modeling to collection care. And this is exactly what we did. This is, a, uh, this is one half of a demographic pyramid, rotated for 90 degrees because there are no male and female connections. And um, this is the, the black line shows uh, the aging profile of, a re of the research collection at, center, at the Center for Sustainable uh, Heritage. We're showing the percentage fit of fit-for-purpose documents into the future. We see that the collection as a whole will become approximately 20% inaccessible in the future because it will degrade too much um, until, I mean, in about 500 years. In other words, in about 500 years, 20% of the collection will become generally inaccessible. 
We also see that the collection will age in two waves. One wave will, um, will, or one half of the collection will age slightly faster, and the other half will age for the next two or three thousand years. So quite a lot of time to figure out what to do with it. Um, however, from a chemical perspective, but also from a conservation perspective, we can divide or we can, we can subdivide this collection or this population into subpopulations. Because we know that the acidic papers produced between 1850 and 1990 approximately age slightly differently to papers produced after 1990, the contemporary print papers, which uh, you're perhaps making notes of. The contemporary papers, the green line, we, we see that pretty much nothing will happen in the next 500 years at 20 degrees centigrade, 15, 50% relative humidity. So perhaps this, this population we really needn't take too much care about. Rack papers produced before 1850 will age fairly slowly, um, and we may lose some in the next 500 years, but they will continue to be a fairly healthy population well into the future. It's really the acidic population, the acidic papers, that will uh, age fairly fast, and at these conditions we will lose approximately 50% of the original population in about 500 years at 820 degrees 50% relative humidity. Unless, and this is also what we evaluated, unless a particular conservation intervention is, is carried out, the acidification which prolongs the lifetime of acidic papers uh, well into the future by a factor of 5 to 10 perhaps. So these uh, demographic pyramids now enable us excuse me, to evaluate the behavior of different types of paper, but also it, they, they enable us to evaluate the um, benefit of conservation interventions. And in the next step, uh, I will show how these pyramids enable us to evaluate changes in temperature relative humidity during long-term storage. In demographic modeling, namely, we sometimes look at a particular damage phenomenon because we want to evaluate whether that damage phenomenon, uh, whether control of that damage phenomenon or variable, if you like, will lead to a, to a particular benefit. Here we see that individuals uh, that, uh, who smoke uh, may typically accept or may typically live about 10, 10 years less than non-smokers. And in demographic modeling, this difference is often used to understand the benefit of public policies banning uh, public smoking, for example. In the same way, we can evaluate the effect of such policies, of such preservation policies, on long-term storage of, of collections. We see a plot showing two damage phenomena or two environmental variables we might be interested in, in terms of long-term storage, temperature and relative humidity, and this particular plot corresponds to, uh, to expected lifetimes for acidic papers using demographic modeling. We see that uh, in this line, it, uh, th this is the 500-year line, and we see that with these acidic papers, 
at approximately 18 degrees centigrade and 50% relative humidity, we might just about reach that long-term planning guideline. For contemporary papers, alkaline, uh, fairly good starting uh, mechanical properties. We see that even if uh, this were the tropics, at 30 degrees centigrade and 60% relative humidity, we'd have absolutely no issue or that there would be absolutely no problem reaching that particular long-term planning horizon. So we can now look at how small changes in temperature and relative humidity will reflect in the expected lifetime of our collections. And sometimes, and particularly policymakers, want to know hard figures in terms of benefits and how these benefits might be reflected when uh, particular policies are, are enforced. And I've looked at some past data in terms of how pollution in particular, for example, is evaluated and how the effect of pollution on either human life or perhaps loss of IQ points uh, is financially evaluated. And to our surprise, perhaps, um, the value of the statistical value of human life in 1990 was only about $5 million in the US, and I believe that now it's valued at about $8 million and a half. And these are figures, contradictory as, as they may be, that allow policymakers to evaluate the, the, the financial benefit of a particular environmental policy. In collection care, we haven't got that far yet, thankfully, perhaps, but we still need to provide data, we still need to provide evidence to senior management to see what collection care policies or how much particular collection care policies might cost. And one of our recent PhD students, for example, did a study of efficiency of pollution mitigation at the National Archives in the Netherlands and she's shown that there is statistically no reason to have uh, pollution control in the archives, uh, leading to a potential saving of approximately 150,000 euro per year. In a study, which I'm sure many of you know, the Building Environment Simulation product Project, done in collaboration between UCL Center for Sustainable Heritage and uh, the National Archives, We've looked at the energy load required to keep certain environmental conditions in the Q2 building. And um, we evaluated the um, energy load to keep 18%, uh, 18 degrees centigrade and 50% relative humidity. And against that baseline, we evaluated the effect of either weekend power down of mechanical uh, ventilation or seasonally adjusted temperature and relative humidity settings. And also, we evaluated the potential impact of external climate in 2050 and 2080. And we uh, modeled that um, potentially we could achieve a saving of approximately 40% if we keep the temperature in the summer slightly higher and the temperature in the winter slightly lower than what might otherwise be acceptable uh, set points, while actually achieving a better and more optimal preservation climate in the repositories. 
by modeling the building, we can also understand how changes in the external climate might affect the energy load required to keep the required set points. And we've modeled that even in 2050, uh, approximately 15% increased energy load might be required and by 2080 a quarter more, which can still be counterbalanced by the saving that could be introduced by seasonally adjusted temperature and relative humidity. So by understanding the effect of the external climate on the indoor climate, by understanding how the indoor climate affects the behavior of materials, and by understanding when the materials may no longer be fit for purpose or when they may no longer be accessed by the general public, we can do, we can do such modeling, we can perform such calculations, and sometimes we can even assess how a particular change in collection care policy might, or what savings a particular change in collection care policy might bring. Which brings me to climate modeling, which is another, another big area of scientific modeling. This is just a graphical model uh, to perhaps explore how climate change uh, might visually impact our city in the future, hopefully not. However, I wanted to end with climate modeling because it is this area of modeling that has advanced enormously in the past 15 or 20 years. And we've now got fairly detailed climate maps and scientists are able to tell you exactly the temperature and relative humidity at half one on the 4th of November in 2091, with some uncertainty, of course. And uncertainty is the last big question we have in collection modeling. Well, not the last, but it is one of the big questions we have in collection modeling as well. Namely, even in climate change modeling, uncertainty analysis, i.e. Um, the ability to provide as accurate predictions as possible or as accurate predictions as needed to make a certain decision uh, is being researched and questioned more and more. And this is one of the recent publications on uncertainty analysis in climate change assessments, assessments uh, just published in the, one of the biggest uh, science journals uh, called Nature. And I'm happy to announce that uh, with TNA, uh, UCL is going to start to supervise a new PhD student uh, looking at uncertainty of uh, collection of damage functions uh, for uh, improved collection management with Costa Santanas as uh, the uh, supervisor at TNA. I should also say that a lot of the research presented in, in, in this particular PowerPoint uh, was collaborative research and I, I really need to thank all of the uh, co-authors and colleagues with whom I collaborated in the recent past and I'd like to thank you for your attention. This talk was recorded on the 4th of November 2013 at the National Archives, Q. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.